so good to just come here and um, I already sense his presence to, uh, to know we're part of a people that can tell stories like we just heard. Um, it's just awesome to be a part of this. And what a day, huh? Beautiful day out there. All right, we are going to uh, continue, conclude our study in the life of Jacob and kind of like what we did with Isaiah 61, I want to look at how Jesus handles this text, this part of the Bible. And uh, does anybody know how Jesus handles the, the life of Jacob? Anyone? What? It's a little piece. Woman at the well was the, was the answer. Okay, good. This will be fun. Um, the reason I, I, I love doing this is because it should remind us that everything that Jesus did, it's all rooted in the Old Testament. All of it. And so every time Jesus opens his mouth, we should be asking, what Old Testament text is Jesus teaching this time? And conversely, I think when we're in the Old Testament, we should be asking ourselves, does Jesus teach on this part of the Old Testament at any part of the time? So turn in your Bibles to Luke 15, (laughs) the parable of the prodigal son. In fact, this may be one of the most popular of Jesus' all teachings. I think I mentioned this before when I was studying in Jerusalem. I took one, one of the classes I took was the parables of Jesus taught by a Jewish rabbi. And I don't know if you know this, but during the time of Jesus, there were thousands of parables being taught by different rabbis. And this rabbi that I was taking this class had studied all these parables. And he said, let me tell you something. This is the best parable ever taught. And he said, it's not even close. And I loved to hear that because that's our teacher, Jesus. Um, Now, here's what I want to ask before I read this text is, How is it that Jesus uses this parable to teach the Jacob story? I mean, how does he make use of it to reveal to us God, God's heart? And then what does that mean for us today? So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 15. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields feed pigs. Obviously, this is a Gentile country. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, 
In other words, he'd become so desperate that he'd wish to become a pig himself so he could get food. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, literally means when he returned to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And he said, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a banquet and let's celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Well, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out. And pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And this is how this literally reads I have never disobeyed any of your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes and he comes home, you kill the fatted calf. My son, the father said, You are always with me, everything I have is yours. But we have had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's word. You can be seated. Kenneth Bailey is the the one who really opened my eyes to a lot of um, things as this thing connects with the Jacob story. In fact, he found 51 connections between this parable and the story of Jacob in Genesis 25 to 35. In fact, there are things in this parable that are only mentioned here and then in the Jacob story and nowhere else in the Bible. And I don't have time to show you all 51 right now, but I'm going to just show you um, kind of six of the more obvious ones. First of all, in verse 11, you notice it starts, A man with two sons. Now, immediately, his audience, who knows the text and knows the text well, would automatically be thinking Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they'd be thinking, hmm, wonder where this thing is going. Now, what you also need to know is this, that by the time of Jesus, Jacob, in their minds, was seen as the greatest of all patriarchs. I mean, he's the father to the Jewish people. Esau 
came to represent to them the Gentiles because Edom, the country that Esau founded, became the code word for Rome. However, these are not the two groups of people that Jesus has in mind. Because we need to look at the context. Why did Jesus tell this parable in the first place? Why? Oh, I'm just going to tell a fun story. No, because in Jesus' day, there were essentially two kinds of Jews. There were the Jews who kept Torah and those who didn't. There was the righteous and then there was the sinner. And these two sons represent these two groups. The older, look at verse 29. The older brother, he says, he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And I have never disobeyed one of your commands. Okay, so the older brother represents the Torah keepers, the righteous. The younger brother are the Torah breakers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. Second, in each story, both the parable and then the Jacob story in Genesis 25 to 35... The younger son is desperate to get the inheritance. And in each story, the younger son uses sort of dishonorable means to get it, and he succeeds. We know that Jacob dresses up to deceive his father. In Jesus' parable, the younger son simply says, give me my blessing. Give me my birthright. Give me my inheritance. I love what Kenneth Bailey has to say about this. And by the way, Kenneth Bailey is a Presbyterian uh, pastor who's lived in the Middle East for 20 years. And he says, no son would ever, ever dare ask their father for the inheritance. Because to do so, what you were saying to your dad is this. I wish you were dead. And so the shocker then for Jesus' audience is this, that the father at this moment doesn't just beat the son silly, but instead, he gives it to him. In fact, in verse 12, when it says the father divided his wealth, the word wealth there in Greek is the word bios, which literally means life. So what he's doing is he's imparting his very life and The audience is just kind of thinking, what kind of idiot father would do this? Third, in each story, the younger son leaves home and is estranged in a faraway country. Four, both stories have an older brother who stays home with the father. And also this older brother is fuming mad with the younger brother. Fifth, both stories have the younger son returning home. And in both, the younger son, as he approaches home, is scared out of his mind to do so. And six, both stories have this beautiful scene of the one who is deeply wronged running to the one who's wronged them, embracing them, kissing them. 
Do you remember that in Jacob? On the eve before his encounter with his brother Esau, just how the text says how badly he wants to see his brother's face. And what he wants to see in his brother's face is a face of compassion, that his brother accepts him and loves him and delights in him. And then we we read that instead of getting that face, that night he gets the face of God. And what I love is the next day when he goes to meet Esau, as he's approaching, we didn't look at all of this, but he's approaching Esau. And when Esau sees him, Esau takes off and runs. And when Esau gets to Jacob, he embraces him. He throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And you know what Jacob says in the text? You can read this in Genesis 33. He says to his brother, To see your face is like seeing the face of God. He equates the face of his brother Esau with the face of God that he had saw the night before. Now in Jesus' parable, it's not the older brother, but it's the father who runs, embraces, and kisses. Can you see these connections? I mean, I could keep going, but I'm not. Can you see how the Jacob story is the backdrop to the parable of the prodigal? But Jesus is obviously taking liberty with this story. He's reshaping it. And therefore, we have to ask ourselves this question then. Why? What is Jesus doing with this story? How is he handling it? And what point is he trying to get across? Well, let me ask this question. Why does Jesus tell this parable in the first place? Does anybody know? Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners, they're all flocking around Jesus. But the Pharisees and the Torah teachers muttered, what's this man doing? What's he doing hanging out with sinners and, and welcoming them and eating with them? And so they're complaining to Jesus. So Jesus then teaches this parable to teach us some important things. Number one, the true nature of sin, what it truly means to be lost, what it means to truly be found, and most importantly, he teaches this parable to teach us about God. So let me start with this question. What is Sin. See, in Jesus' day, sin was fundamentally breaking Torah. It was breaking the rules. And Jesus is dealing with an audience that basically broke the world down into two kinds of people. There are the good people and the bad people. The good people are the people who know Torah and keep Torah The bad people are the people who don't care about the rules and don't keep them. Of course, the Pharisees and the tax collectors are the epitome of the rule keepers, and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and sinners are the epitome of the rule breakers. Now listen to me. Do you do that? Do you break the world down into good people and bad people? And if so, in your mind right now, who are the good people 
And who are the bad people? See, because what Jesus is doing is he's teaching us that sin is fundamentally deeper than just breaking the rules. Sin is breaking a relationship. In fact, at the deepest level, Jesus is teaching that sin is wishing that God were dead and out of my life so that I can control it and be the one who calls the shots. Now, younger brother lostness, I think, is very easy to see. And we can see it a thousand miles away. Person all hung over, living foolishly, recklessly, partying, sleeping with prostitutes. I mean, this guy, he, he wears his sin on his, on his clothes. But even for, for, for the younger brother, his sin is so much deeper than having sex with prostitutes. It's deeper than wild living Because you have to ask yourself, what's the sin under the sin? Why is he doing this? Well, when he says, give me my inheritance, he is seeking more than just wealth and wild living. He is seeking to be in control of his life. In effect, what he is saying to the father is this. I wish you were dead. I'll take your stuff, but I don't want you. And that's sin. And see, younger brother lostness oftentimes is tragic. It goes to incredibly messy places, famine, starvation, death. But see, Jesus' purpose for telling the parable is not just to speak to that kind of lostness because Jesus goes on and he says there's a whole other way for a person to be lost. And it's not just as a rule breaker, But you can be just as lost as a goody-two-shoes rule keeper. You can be just as lost by being a good Bible-reading, Bible-believing, Bible-obeying churchgoer. And now we better listen. I want you to think about this. Who in the Jacob story in Genesis 25 to 35 is the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Well, to the the Jews, to Jesus' audience, I mean, Jacob is the good guy. I mean, he's the hero. He's Israel. Who's the bad guy? Well, to them, Esau's the bad guy. He's the Gentile. He's the one who despised his birthright. But because of how Jesus retells the story... The younger who represents Jacob in their paradigm, who is the good guy. But in Jesus' parable, the good guy becomes the bad guy. The rebellious rule breaker. And the bad guy Esau, in Jesus' parable, is actually portrayed as the good guy, the rule keeper. Do you see this? Now, I went over this with my wife this morning. She said, that's so confusing. And it was for the audience of Jesus' day. It would have just been like, what? But see, what Jesus is brilliantly telling them is this. Don't put people into categories. Don't just assume that the good are good and in with God and that the bad are bad and out with God. Because God doesn't have these categories, good people and bad people. 
Because what Jesus also shows here is that both the good and the bad are lost. They're both lost. And see, for God, if he has any categories, it's not good people and bad people. It's lost people and found people. And in the end, who's, who's found? In the end, who's lost? See, and this is why Jesus is telling this story, because he came to seek and to save the lost. And he didn't come to just seek and save bad people. He came to seek and to save good, obedient, Bible-reading, Bible-obeying churchgoers. That's why, and I know some of you are thinking, wait, Rod, you're stretching this. Come on. Look at verse 28. The father has to go out. Just like the shepherd in the previous parable has to go out and seek and find the lost sheep. Just like in the parable before that, the woman has to go, go out and look for the lost coin. The father had to go out. Why? Because the son is lost. He is alienated from the father. And just like the lost coin, just like the lost sheep, someone needs to go out and find him and bring him back. And see, what I want us to hear this morning, too, in this parable is that Jesus is not only telling us that this older brother is lost, but he explains why he is lost. Because when he says, I have not disobeyed one of your commandments, this sums up the older brother. I've kept the rules. See, the older brother is not lost in spite of his goodness. The older brother is lost because of his goodness. Now just put that in your pipe for a moment and smoke it. (laughs) Because... All us good people right now ought to be hearing the words, beware. But I'll tell you what goodness can do. Goodness can blind us to the lost condition of our soul. It can be the way that we dress up like Jacob dressed up when he went to his father. The way that we dress up to get the blessing. And see, we can use our goodness on the outside to mask the true condition of our heart. What is the condition of your heart? Because the older I get, the more I see that there's more sin tucked under my goodness than underneath my badness. And see, what goodness can do is it can keep us from coming to our senses about ourselves. Because it keeps us from the very thing we need to be, to be found. Like you're humble, and broken, and needy. See, rather than thinking I'm unworthy, we just start to think, wow, look how worthy I am. I mean, hey God, if anyone deserves the fatted calf, it's me. 
And see, what good people are tempted to do is they're tempted to use their goodness like a weapon against God to leverage God so they can have control of their life, which is still the essence of sin. See, for the younger son, he gets control of his life by rejecting his father. For the older son, he gets control of his life by using his father. Father, because I've obeyed you all these years, you owe me my share of the estate. And in so doing, when we use God and we use our goodness to, as leverage against God, we never come to the place right here, God. I'm unworthy. That's why some of you are so angry all the time. You think God owes you. Father, I've done everything right. You owe me. I deserve better than this. I've paid my dues. It's why some of you are so critical and judgmental. You see this older brother? He's critical of his brother. He's critical of his father. You never threw me a party. See, anyone who bases their life on being good always will be insecure about, am I really good enough? This is why they have difficulty forgiving. It's why they're always keeping grudges because they think to themselves, I'd never do that. That's why some of you have such a mechanical and joyless relationship with God. Your relationship is summed up by these words. I've been slaving away all these years. See, a real Christian obeys God, not to leverage God, but because in their heart they just, they love him. They love him. So again, with God, there are really only two people in the world. It's not good people and bad people. It's lost people and found people. Now, do you see how Jesus is using this parable to answer his critics? <laughs> Jesus, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Do you hear what Jesus is saying? I not only eat with them. It's far worse than that. I run to them. I embrace them. I throw my arms around them. I throw a party with them. And the angels of heaven join the party. And this is why Jesus says in Matthew 21 to 31 to all the rule keepers of his day, the Pharisees. He says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. And they still are. And so being found, according to Jesus, is it's not just being good. It's not just keeping the rules. But being found, according to Jesus, is coming home. It's experiencing the embrace and the kiss of the Father. It's being in his arms, even when sometimes it feels like a wrestling match. It's beholding his face. That's home. And see, you and I have been made for home. 
and according to Jesus, there's only one true home. And home, according to Jesus, it's not a place. Home is a relationship. Home is the place where I am in relationship with my father. That's home. In fact, I love how Henry Nouwen puts this. He says, home is at the center of my being where I hear God say, my son, whom I love, whom I'm well pleased. That's home. You see, the older brother lived at home, but he never knew home. He's at home, yet he's far away from home. The prodigal left home trying to find home. And see, some of you spend so much of your life searching for home because we desperately just seek to find that place where we're loved, where we're cherished, where we're accepted, a place where we feel like we belong. We seek it in so many different places. We seek it in different people, those places that affirm us, that accept us, that stimulate us, that pleasure us, that adore us, that tell us we're significant, that we matter. But in the end, all these homes aren't home. And I'll tell you, if we choose to find home apart from the Father, we will always experience what the prodigal experiences. Famine. Starvation. But see what this parable is about. It's about returning. Verse 20. So he got up and he went to his father. That word in Greek is erkomai, which means to return. Now, do you remember what the Hebrew word is for return? Does anybody remember? Shuv. It's in the Jacob story. Teshuvah is the Hebrew word for Repentance. So here's my question today. Have you repented? Have you returned to the Father? Again, that's the question. And you can just sit here and you can listen to another sermon. Or you can ask yourself, have I returned? Have I really returned? Now think about it from this point. Jesus never preached a sermon without talking about repentance. Returning. Leave. Leave life. Living for me. Leave it. And return to the Father. Now here's where we need to be careful. Because when we read the story of the prodigal, it's so easy to make the prodigal the hero of the story. I mean, we could just all of a sudden think that, okay, he's the one who comes to his senses. He's the one who recognizes that life away from home is, is famine. It's pigsty. It's a mess. And he, unlike his older brother, he repents. And I think in the same way, we can this morning think of ourselves as the hero in returning. 
But let me ask this question. What is it that causes the prodigal to repent? Well, it's first thought of home. It's the thought of his father. He remembers home. But is this repentance? No, it's not. So when does the prodigal repent? Is it in a faraway country? No. And I want to show you something. In verse 17, where it says he returned to himself, literally that reads that way. It it doesn't mean he returned to his senses. It means he returned to himself. Is that repentance returning to ourselves? No. What about even coming to this realization of how pathetic our life is because of the choices we've made and maybe even getting to the point where we're just saying, I'm so sorry about those choices. Is that repentance? No. I mean, my boys do this all the time. Kate hasn't quite maybe gotten to the age yet, but I'll get on them for something. They'll just be like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is that repentance? Bennett, is that repentance? (laughs) Okay, so then you go to verse 17, I think it is, and you look at this guy's speech. And let me ask you, is this repentance? It looks like repentance. It sounds like repentance. The problem, though, is that this is a word-for-word quote from Exodus of what Pharaoh says to Moses. Pharaoh says to Moses, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Which we all know that wasn't repentance. That was just a way for Pharaoh to manipulate Moses and to manipulate God. So the prodigal is still being Jacob. He's still devising a plan that will get him out of this mess. In fact, one of the reasons why the prodigal waits this long, literally to the brink of death, is because he knows what kind of welcome he's going to get. See, in that culture, when a Jew squanders all of their wealth, leaving all of their money with Gentiles, with Gentiles, and then has the audacity to come home, In Jesus' day, that whole community would perform a ceremony. They'd place the person in front of the whole community. They'd take this big jar filled with food from the land. Someone would smash it to say, this is the brokenness that you've caused us. You've broken everything that is good. You've broken our trust. You've broken fellowship. And worse than that, you've broken the heart of your father. And the damage now is beyond repair. So let these broken pieces represent your broken life. You are no longer welcome here. You are not family. You're cut off. And the ceremony was called the Kazaza ceremony because Kazaza means to be cut off. And the son, I can tell you, did not want to return to this, but he's starving. And he gets to the outskirts of his hometown. What does he see? He sees his father off in the distance. 
running to him. And you need to know that no distinguished patriarch in that culture ever ran. Children ran. Women ran. But it was undignified for a head of a household to lift up his robe, to show his legs, and to run. No man would ever do this. But this is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary father. Because Jesus, first and foremost, in this parable, is telling us who God is. And you want to know who God is? He isn't just a father. He is this kind of father. A father who never stopped loving his son, no matter how far he was from home, And of course, that boy never stopped needing his father, no matter how far he ran away. And this is a parable, first and foremost, to teach us about God, that our God is a father who runs. And no matter what distant country you've been, no matter how long you've been away, no matter what you've done or how you've squandered and made a mess of your inheritance, the moment you turn... And take one step towards God. He picks up his robe. And he bears his legs. And he runs. He sprints to you. And see, this is the part of the story. Where the tax collectors. And the prostitutes. He loves me. He runs to me. He embraces me. He kisses me. And this is what causes our heart to repent. I don't repent because I'm so good. I repent because he's so good. He's that kind of a father. He's the hero. There's only one hero in the Bible. There's only one hero here right now. One. And see, David understood this. In Psalm 23, when David says he restores my soul, that word for restore, again, is that Hebrew word shuv, meaning this, he causes my heart to repent. It's not the lost sheep who returns. It's the good shepherd who goes out and finds the lost sheep. It's not the coin who returns. It's the woman who goes out and finds it. When Gabe and I were at J.H. Ranch, one of the speakers told a story of this teenager who ran away from home, living in farmland, farmhouse, Seattle. He was just sick of home life. And he went and he just did everything imaginable that was sinful. 
and he got to the point where he wanted to go home. And as good as his parents were, he still knew that they probably wouldn't accept him. But he wrote a letter and he just said, look, I'm not even worthy to get an answer straight from you, but you know how the train just goes right past our farmhouse. All you need to do is on the clothesline, just put out a white rag. When I pass, I'll know. And he, he gets on that train, and as he gets closer, he's so scared, so he puts his head down, and he says to the guy sitting next to him, he said, could you, this is going to sound strange, but could you just please look and see? As we go around this corner, there's going to be a house, and there's going to be a clothesline. Would you tell me there's a white rag? And he's got his head down. They turn the corner. And the guy says, you've got to see this. And he looks up on that clothesline. Hundreds of rags. On the barn, huge white sheet. And on every tree, as far as he could see, were white sheets. Come on. That's the heart of the Father. He aches for you. He loves you. And here's the deal. When we come home, there is no Kazasa ceremony. Because that ceremony was already performed 2,000 years ago when God's son, our true older brother, like that jar, he was and it was completely cut off so that we get the embrace and the kiss of the Father. And Jesus says, when you come home, we throw a banquet. And this morning, the banquet is set. So tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, come home. Good people, religious people, Rule keepers, come home. Give up control. Bow the knee and surrender your life to your heavenly father and your big brother who are willing to do anything to get you to come home. God, sometimes our earthly fathers, because of who they were and what they've done and how they've treated us, get in the way. But I just pray, God, that you would open the eyes of our heart today, all of us, to see that you are this kind of a father. A father who runs to us, irrespective of who we are, or what we have done. May we, may that be seen by our heart, and may it cause us to repent.